0: The real fulfillment in anything is what you become. And when you learn to master something as simple as a a little piece of plastic with a a magnetized needle in it, you're really feeling good about something that's pretty simple. Imagine what it's like when you, you figure out something that's very complicated, like a giant old buck that's really got his head down.
1: Big Buck Registry's deer hunting podcast, episode number 240. Rodney Elmer, knowing when to hunt and when to follow. Support for the Big Buck Registry and the Deer Hunt Podcast comes from Hunter's Blend Coffee. Awaken your hunt with coffee purchased directly from farmers around the world, creating jobs and alleviating poverty. Hunter's Blend Coffee. We're hunters too. Polar Works Coolers and the Chill Zone, specializing in the most durable, reliable thermal cups and coolers. Keep your drinks hot or cold in any element. Black Ash Outdoor Products reduce your risk of tree stand suspension trauma with a tree stand wingman, the tree stand emergency descender system. The Enforcer. Take control of your odor footprint with your personal ozone generator. Covert scouting cameras. Remote cameras for hunting, wildlife, and security. The Horny Buck Seed Cummy. It's all about the freshest seed. Morse's Sporting Goods. A full line of sporting goods without the sales tax. And Big Buck merch. You can get cool, high-quality Big Buck t-shirts, long-sleeve t-shirts, and hoodies. And show support for this podcast by visiting www.bigbuckregistry.com forward slash M-E-R-C-H. big buck registry is a virtual museum of hunting stories we preserve a piece of americana by interviewing and recording hunters about their hunts and experiences from across the country and who knows maybe we'll learn a thing or two along the way that'll help us take our hunt to the next level
0: this is chancy walters with Tail adrenaline and big buck Runner. you're about to listen to my favorite podcast the big buck registry Hey, this is Melissa Bachman of Winchester Deadly Passion on the Sportsman channel. You're listening to my favorite deer hunting podcast, Big Buck Registries Deer Hunting Podcast. This is Mike Beerman and I shot at Living Room Buck. And you are listening to my favorite hunting podcast, the Big Buck Registries, Big Buck Podcast.
1: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, fellow predators. My name is Jay, and thank you for tuning in to the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. For Dusty Phillips and Jim Keller and the entire staff here at the Big Buck Registry, welcome to this week's show. There are a couple things I'd like you to do for us if you could. If you would, please check us out on iTunes, subscribe, and leave us a review. With your help, we're going to try and push this show up the iTunes charts. I know we have a lot of listeners out there, and I need you to take some action. I need you to leave a review and subscribe to the show. If you do subscribe, that'll give you access and notification each and every week that a new show is released. You can also access this show in its entirety on YouTube, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Google Play. It's all right there for you to access on demand at your fingertips. Regarding the harness program, we have an ample supply of harnesses to give away from our volunteer donors. If you're in need of a full-body harness, please send an email to jay at bigbuckregistry.com. For some reason, central Vermont is home to arguably some of the best deer trackers in the country, especially when you throw the Benoit family into the mix. Rodney Elmer is no exception to this. I met up with Rodney at a hunting and fishing expo recently, and in conversation, I quickly realized that Rodney was as much into the outdoor way of life as I am. Rodney is well-spoken and can speak intelligently on the hunter's hot topics of today, but it doesn't end there. Rodney is a steward of the woods, has top-notch navigation skills, as you might expect, is a professional taxidermist of 32 years and is a chief hunter safety instructor and safety officer in Vermont. Rodney has his finger on the pulse of the hunting community and shares his views through his popular and rising YouTube channel. We'll turn to our entire interview with Rodney Elmer in just one moment, but before we do, let's turn to Jim Keller for the deer news. Folks, I want to tell you about one of the best coolers i found for the price in quite a while. I was with my family the other day and I couldn't believe the price on the cooler I was looking at. I always wanted one of those high-end coolers because of the quality that I had heard of, but I couldn't justify the price. Then I found Polar Works. Finally, I found a company that understands quality and affordability. The Polar Works lineup is extensive and is filled with polar cups, polar tubs, and polar soft coolers. What do I love about these coolers? Well, for one, the ice stays frozen for a long, long period of time. But they've thought of other things in their design, for example, drain speed. No one likes a slow drain after a long weekend on the trail. The Polar Lock System. You're always protecting your valuable beverages from thirsty outsiders. And there's the non-slip polar feet. Polar feet will prevent sudden movement when you're on the move. There's the sweat-free material, so you don't have to worry about cleaning up puddles when you're finished with your journey. Polar tubs hold ice for such a long period of time because of the 3-inch insulated walls, the heavy-duty gaskets, and the fail-proof hinges, which guarantee a freezer-tight seal. So check out PolarWorks.com when you're considering your next high-quality cooler without breaking the bank. That's www.polarwerkz.com.
2: For the Big Buck Registry, this is Jim Keller with the Deer News. Our first story this week, Japan's female hunters take aim at stereotypes and wild boar. This story is from the United Kingdom's independent news website and was reported by Megumi Leem. Chiaka Kodama blows her deer whistle and soon a male deer wanders into sight. She slowly takes aim and squeezes the trigger. Moments later, Kodama and a friend on her first hunt are tracking the wounded animal through the forest in Japan's Fukui Prefecture. The 28-year-old hairdresser and city councilor is among a small but growing number of Japanese women entering the male-dominated world of hunting where it was once taboo for men to even speak to a woman before going on a hunt. As the hunting fraternity shrinks due to age and rural depopulation, women are recruited to help protect farms against rising numbers of wild deer and boar viewed as pests by farmers. Japanese farmers have lost up to 23 billion yen, which is over $214 million in U.S., annually since 2008 because of rising numbers of deer, boar, monkeys, and birds, the Ministry of Agriculture said last month. Since the late 1990s, the number of deer in Japan has jumped from less than 400,000 to more than 3 million, according to the Ministry of Environment. The boar population doubled to 1 million over the same period. Hunting is necessary to keep these numbers in check. Other methods have not proven effective. Of Japan's 105,000 registered hunters, Two-thirds are 60 or older and only 1,169 are female, according to the National Hunting Association, which counted 500,000 hunters in the late 1970s. Hunting groups and local governments are trying to recruit women through social media. In some prefectures, women can sign up for hunting courses or join a hunting tour. Others, like Kodama, provide on-the-hunt training. After shooting the deer, Mm -hmm. Kodama and her 28-year-old friend, Aeo Fukunu, followed the blood trail, and found the dead animal lying on a fallen tree. Kodama then showed I.O. how to gut the deer and lay it in a river to drain the blood. It's exciting to finally see, with my own eyes, what I read in textbooks to get my license, said I.O.A. Hunter Pastor, using animal collar, mistaken for a coyote, and fatally shot. This story is from the Fox News website and was reported by Joshua Rhett Miller. The hunter in North Carolina who was using an electronic animal collar was fatally shot by a man who said he mistook the sounds for coyotes roaming near his home, police and relatives said. Michael Seth Miller, 26, was killed late Monday in a wooded area in Taylorsville, about 60 miles northwest of Charlotte, as he was hunting coyotes with a 12-gauge shotgun, a rifle, and an electronic coyote call, the Taylorsville Time reports. Marsh, who served as the pastor of Russell Gap Baptist Church, was shot several times in the chest by a man who told police he heard coyotes screaming nearby and believed the animals had trapped something in a tree. The man, whose identity was not released because he was not immediately charged, said he then fired two shots at the brown and gray movement in the trees. The shooter later called police after he realized he had shot the hunter and not a wild animal. Marsh was rushed to a nearby hospital, but he could not be saved. Marsh is survived by his wife, Katie, and two children, Braylon and Isaac. A GoFundMe page has been set up for the family. Just search for Michael Seth Marsh. Recently introduced federal bills allocate $45 million to address CWD. This story is from the National Deer Alliance website. Chronic wasting disease represents the single largest threat to wild deer, period. Anyone who says otherwise is disillusioned. Thankfully, some national lawmakers agree. House Bill 4454, the Chronic Wasting Disease Management Act, and its sister bill in the Senate, S.2252, the Chronic Wasting Disease Support for States Act, were recently introduced to Capitol Hill. The National Deer Alliance, along with other key partners, provided significant input on the drafting of this important legislation. The bills are designed to support state and tribal efforts to develop and implement management strategies to address chronic wasting disease among deer, elk, and moose, populations to support applied research regarding the cause of chronic wasting disease and methods to control the further spread of the disease and for other purposes. Essentially, the bills provide $35 million to the Secretary of Agriculture to appropriate to the states and tribal agencies for the management of CWD both long-term and in rapid response to threats of spreading. Additionally, another $10 million will be available to fund grants that support research. The National Deer Alliance outlines deer diseases and wild deer conservation among its key initiatives. These two bills provide much needed funds to states and tribal agencies to manage and research CWD and its impact on wild deer populations. Certainly, this type of legislation is long overdue. Better management and more research should not only help agencies and entities learn more about CWD, but ideally it will help prevent the further spread of the disease. Join the NDA in support of HR 4454 and S2252. Visit the NDA Grassroots Advocacy Center where you can place your vote of support for the bill and directly email your state's federal lawmakers with just a few minutes and a few mouse clicks. Your voice will be heard. Also, joining the National Deer Alliance is free. Just visit the NationalDeerAlliance.com website and enter your email address to stay current on these and other important deer issues. And for those of you I met at the Michigan Deer and Turkey Expo last Saturday, thanks for stopping me and saying hi. It was great to meet everyone. That concludes this week's edition of the Big Buck Registry's Deer News. Special thanks once again to Daniel Applebaum, who provided the leads on several of the stories this week. For links to the stories featured this week, please check our show notes at www.bigbuckregistry.com. If you have any ideas for future topics or have any questions about any of these topics, please email me at jim at bigbuckregistry.com. For the Big Buck Registry, this is Jim Keller with the Deer News.
1: Thanks to Jim Keller for the Deer News. Without further ado, here is Rodney Elmer. Rodney Elmer, welcome to the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. How are you, my friend? I'm excellent. How are you? I'm doing well. Doing well. Good to get caught up again. We we met down at the Deer Summit down in Manchester, and uh, we hit it off. We had lots to talk about. You were on the panel with, with everybody else down there, and you had some very good points to make about deer hunting and the world we live in, and I thought it'd be good to bring you back and kind of open that up a little bit more and learn more about
0: you. Yeah, that, that was great
1: down there. It is interesting when you get a group of hunters in a room and you hear everybody's perspective on all types of different topics uh, that influence our lives as hunters.
0: Oh, definitely. It's just like deer camp. <laughs>
1: it is. It is. Although I think deer camp might, might be a little less G-rated, but
0: it's right. <laughs> <that's> all good.
1: <laughs> so Rodney, tell me about who you are. Where, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Where do you live now?
0: Well, I, um, I'm i from central Vermont. Uh, I grew up in Barrie. Um, mm-hmm. My my folks uh, uh, owned a little small uh, beef farm, and uh, we raised white-faced cows, and uh, uh, pretty much I was a Daniel Boone kid. Um, I, the social media today, uh, the social media back then was a TV set. Huh? That's probably as close as we came to it. But. Um, when my mother was searching for things for me for me to watch when I was young, it was Daniel Boone. That was an acceptable thing for me to watch, and I just always been kind of one of my heroes. And mm-hmm. with the when he walked around with that rifle and he always knew what to say and what to do, I just wanted to be like that. It wasn't long, and I was out stalking the the Holsteins and. The back 40.
1: <laughs> right, right. The, it, yeah, Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett, those were early influences in my life. You just kind of became fascinated with, with the, the rugged elements that they were involved in and somehow easily overcame. Of course, it was television or whatever, but it was just the concept yeah. uh, that yeah. there, there actually were people like that uh, that lived one day on this planet that were uh, incredible outdoorsmen and made careers yeah. out of it.
0: Yeah. Masters of their world. And right. they seem to know people good too. They, they could defuse and, and straighten out and get to the bottom of everything. They were good investigators. I like that.
1: <laughs> right, right. That's a good point. Do you re- have a earliest recollection of your uh, first hunting experience?
0: Well, I, I of course, did like everybody else. I, I carried the, the, the coonskin hat, and which was rabbit. And I, I walked out there with a the little wooden gun my father made. And and stock those big holsteins that i wasn't even scared of but they were the the buffalo out in the field Uh, that was the very first probably where i was willing to step out the lawn and go a little farther out into the world explore it some but when i finally picked up my very first 22 uh, my grandfather's and um asked to borrow it and talked to my grandmother talked my grandfather into letting me try it out and we we walked out into the woods and shot a little bit and then i was in love with it from then on and Finally, the time came when I, I just had to shoot something. I was good enough with it, and my father let me practice some. And I, I walked out um, in our sugar bush uh, while he was cutting wood in the spring, and a chipmunk uh, hollered at me from a stone wall, and I couldn't help myself, right? That, that very first thing, there it was, and this was the chance, and it, it would probably be okay with my dad, so I made the shot at about, I don't know, 15 feet, and, and got that, that little chipmunk, and I was pretty happy And I had him in my hand and I ran down to my father and showed him and he said to me, and he just kind of stared at me and he said, well, what now? And I stood there with that little limp, warm, little chipmunk in my hand. And now suddenly I'm Opie Taylor, right? And (laughs) I'm thinking, well, you know, look what I've done, you know, and it was the very first time. And it's, I don't think I've shot a chipmunk since probably. I guess I only needed to shoot one of those. Right. it didn't stop me but it was one of those things that made me think about what i was doing and it was definitely a step forward into into manhood
1: yeah right and and disney of course has done another wonderful job at painting the picture of wild chipmunks on screen
0: right well no they're a piece of life and they deserve some respect but a- absolutely so, so do I. I i i want to belong to that too
1: right right that makes sense There are, uh, for people listening to the show, they may, and and probably not that many understand what life is like in Vermont these days. Can you describe Vermont, uh, as, as a way of life and and what it means to you to live in Vermont?
0: When I was growing up, it was mostly farms. Uh, the forest, um, was just really starting to roar to life when I was real young. Um, the, the farming industry uh, took it pretty hard when they required bulk tanks and uh, concrete floors and all the things that upgraded you know all the farms in, in our state and we were really a rural state of, of farms and as time went on and, and all those farms started to slowly go out and our forests grew like crazy and our deer herd really exploded by the end of the 60s and I was just a, a little fellow back then. Um, it, it made deer hunting um, of grew from that. To um, have so many deer on hand, uh, everybody really liked it, they appreciated it. Um, we had a couple of real tough winters in the beginning of the 70s and uh, then the the habitat changed and the herd changed and our management thoughts changed and over time here we've kind of grew into more of a forested state. Um, we uh, quite a bit more uh, forestry spread. Um, I think there's seven million acres of uh, land in Vermont with four million of them being it's Ten inch hardwood trees and as far as the eye can see, so it 's really now a, a bedroom community to a lot of other places perhaps um, there's a ruralness to it we we hide our houses <laughs> we we like our trees um, we don't like to cut them a great lot, but we do um, somewhat. Um, the majority of our our uh, industries have uh, dwindled some, and we're a lot more small business owners. Uh, Burlington has grown some our biggest city along the along the Lake Champlain there has, has grown some in general though it's it's a pretty nice place to vacation um we're known for our skiing and things like that so mm-hmm. uh, a lot of good a lot of good ruralness about Vermont, but it's definitely not the farms that it was
1: right I mean it's it's become way more forested uh these days than it ever has been i i I would assume and but the, the the drive up Interstate '89 across Vermont is stunning. I mean, I've had people come in from out of state and they'll come down route 89 and they always comment at how beautiful the landscape is along that highway.
3: And yeah,
0: it yeah. truly is stunning. Yeah, it is fantastic. In the fall, with our, we have a lot of uh, mixed uh, sugar maple and red maple. So there's a lot of oranges and reds. And and even the, some of the ash will turn up like a purple hue. They're just, the the foliage is gorgeous. And, and we have lots and lots of tourists come to Vermont just in the fall to, to look at the leaves. It's incredible. Right, and right. they're just fantastic.
1: The deer herd in Vermont, as I've learned, is really strong right now. Or at least it was couple of years ago is that still the case and what what has been the situation with the herd
0: well for quite a while there we had quite a few deer and, and um, then we had a few really hard winters in the early 2000s uh, things got knocked back pretty good um, winter severity um, is really a, a major factor in in how our deer herd is doing winter is our number one killer of deer ain't no question and um, also too within a a somewhat aging forest. In the last 10 years or so, um, the carrying capacity um, has probably lowered some and with our aging trees and really a an ethic towards not growing softwood. Uh, softwood, you know, your evergreens are really important to deer in the wintertime. Uh, hemlock and spruce and fir, pine uh, are really important. Sp- species cedar and with not so much of our forest uh, at least our attitudes to our forest at, at growing softwoods and, and we have a really hardwood soil we we grow hardwoods like crazy and our average tree is a 10 inch hardwood so the vast majority of our our wintering areas are really focused around a small amount of our state, uh, the actual, the best spots for deer to spend the winter. And that small little 17% of our state that we could consider wintering areas, really critical habitat. And as of lately, um, the carrying capacity of the state has probably dropped a little bit, just mostly due to the forest itself. Um. In general, though, our hunting seasons, uh, we, we usually have some pretty nice uh, bucks. We we don't have anything that's uh, super-duper. We have two inches of ledge soil in a lot of our places, so um, we probably won't grow the, the, the boon and crockets that other places have the luxury of having. But um, in general, our our deer are pretty healthy, and they're doing fairly well, and, and we're staying real close at our carrying capacity, and that's a good thing. Gotcha. Um, you got what you got, pretty much. Right. Gotcha.
1: What's your general style of hunting? What, what do you consider yourself between a, a tracker or a tree stand hunter, ground ground hunter, stalker? There's all kinds of different categories. Where, where do you see yourself?
0: Uh, I At one time, I fit in every single category. Okay. Right? I love to tree stand hunt. Uh, I love to look down on them, kind of sit there like an owl and wait for something to come along. I love doing that. I love stalking. If I can see something from a distance and want to get in just as close to it, um, that was probably one of my first real deer experiences was stalking deer out in the field and getting as close to them as I could. I'd crawl through the grass for 200 yards just to get as close to them as I could as they were feeding. But as, as I have progressed as a hunter, and because we have so much open land, Vermont and, and New Hampshire, Maine, and northern New England is a fantastic place to deer hunt. It's a terrible place to kill deer (laughs) there's very few deer and you have to work real hard at them And we're very good deer hunters in Vermont. I probably put a Vermonter up against most anybody for finding deer We're just we have a habit habit and a knack of doing it, but in general I I'm because I have so much space and if the deer are really high pressured and they lay down and I sit there and they sit there and nobody moves um, I can spend all my days just sitting there looking at nothing. So I've kind of adopted, as of lately, I've adopted this, let's just go in there and get them up and go call to them. Let's get as close to them as we can, just get right in there and get fairly aggressive at it. Um, and it's, it's worked fairly good. I've also educated a lot of deer. There's some downsides to doing that. Yeah. Um, but I do. I love to stalk, I love to still hunt, but I also love to track. I, I want to follow them. That tracking is an, an unfolding story.
1: What is it about that central Vermont area that brings great trackers to the world of deer hunting? It's the Benoites are out of Vermont uh, originally. It's pr- arguably the most famous tracking deer hunting family ever. Uh, yeah. No so question. What What is it about that area that that uh, grows these these deer hunters? You're you're definitely becoming popular uh, through your YouTube capacity, and more and more people are hearing about you. What is it about that area?
0: Uh, there's I, it's almost like a giant community deer camp. Uh, the Even with social media now, we're, we're all talking on Facebook all the time. We're all meeting new people all the time. We're all discussing views and ways of getting it done. And when you put a whole bunch of really experienced deer hunters together, and the satisfaction that comes from walking right up to a deer and shooting it, and it's one that you picked out, one that you decided to go and get, um, and you, you're just, you're actually... Just doing it and giving the deer the maximum amount of chances to live, right? Yeah. That is that is special, and there's there's a deep like satisfaction that seems to spread between all the hunters and Central Vermont hunters. You bet. I I base my my business, my taxidermy business here, on not on the wildlife or on how good you know our big our bucks are, but I base it on how good our hunters are. Vermonters hunt everywhere uh like 15 percent of vermont's uh population hunts uh, We're second only to alaska that that's pretty amazing and it's just kind of in our blood in central vermont you bet uh, there there could be literal i know literally hundreds of fellows who could be sitting here right now talking to you and they are equally or better qualified than me no question there's a lot of really good deer hunters in central vermont and almost kind of crazy <laughs> crazy obsessive about it too really it's okay. all, yeah. That's great. Fascinating.
1: You're so you have a taxidermy business uh um, that is your primary source of of revenue I would, I, I think. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, this
0: is 33 years now.
1: Wow. Okay. You're you're also heavily involved in hunter education. I want to touch on both of these subject matters. Your let's talk about your taxidermy business. How did you get into taxidermy and, and what does it help you keep tabs on as far as what's happening in your communities
0: for the most part uh, i i i said i was reading an outdoor life and chuck adams went to uh, the upper part of quebec on gaba bay and went caribou hunting and and i read his article and i said boy i gotta do that i it just wanted i want to go see the caribou before they're gone and, and this was 30 years ago and they were worried about the caribou herd um crashing in quebec and it's just getting around to it now but they were worried about it back then, and, and I said, boy, you know, I want to go and do this while I have a chance, and I love bow hunting, so I went up, and I went to the same exact camp that he went to, I sat under the tr- same tree he did, it was uh, pretty something to talk to his guide, and to be in the same place that he was, and and at the time, man, he was the bow hunter of the world, right, right. He was the, and I, I wanted to go and, and go to some place where somebody really knew what they were doing and, and I didn't, right? So I, I went out there and had a fantastic time. When I came back I, I brought my trophy with me and uh it it, it came just short of Pope and Young and when i got it back and and i wanted to get it mounted and everybody around here um back then was to everybody said go see mike Renault in colchester so i went up to mike's shop and when i walked into his shop with my antlers and i looked around i said this is cool at the time i was a granite worker in central vermont i i could make you Anything out of granite, uh, gravestones and uh, mausoleums and countertops, and you name it, I can do it all. Boy, I've got to give this a try. This looks so cool. And I, I of course, I love wildlife and, and to get a chance to handle it, to hold it more, um, to really study it and see just exactly what a deer looks like or a pheasant. It was it was intriguing to me. And uh, I ended up, he says, well, you know, get yourself one of those kits out of Cabela's and give it a whirl, you know. And until you do that, I'm probably not even going to talk to you about it. And I said, you know what, I'm going to do it. So I asked my wife for a, a, one of those kits from Cabela's. She bought me one. I shot a nice little six pointer that year. Um, here in Vermont. So I mounted him right up and uh, <laughs> I think it took me three days to flush my first uh, deer cape. and now I, I do it in probably an hour and a half. Um, so <laughs> it was quite a quite a thing for me, but I loved it. and I, it was another part of my deer obsession, I suppose, and I, I just jumped right into it and it was another way of connecting with with deer. And I just loved it and then one thing turned into another and you're doing one for a friend and you're doing one over here and Then I'm fishing with the kids and I'm thinking boy I should be home doing my taxidermy instead of fishing with my kids And I had a full-time job as it was and I said you know what something's got to go and I think that full-time job's got to go and I jumped out of that and Jumped into taxidermy and just went full-time. I did it for seven years full-time on my porch But it grew into a building. Now I've got a nice big building and I've got a lot going on, and it's been 33 years of just joy and just knowing so many people and so many awesome hunters and so many awesome even animals. The specimens and all the different things that I've seen and got a chance to explore through this business has just been incredible for me.
1: As a taxidermist, are you aware of when seasons are going well and the health of the herd more than just the the everyday
0: hunter well when you talk deer hunting uh, you know every day all day year round after a while <laughs> you you hear it all um yeah you bet you're you're going to hear where there's a big buck or where there used to be a big buck um you hear trends um and even after a while you know the wardens, uh, I work with them some. I, I see quite a few of uh, uh, the Fish and Wildlife staff and stuff, and we, we get a chance to talk about so many things, and there's there's a chance to see what's what's happening in real time with the animals themselves. You know, and when you look at two or 300 deer from you know most of the New England states, and it's early October, and those archery deer, those does are coming in, and I'm looking at the, the thickness of the, the uh, fat on the breastbone yeah. you know see that and that's an indication of health and and it gives me a chance to even talk one on one with a lot of folks who may not necessarily you know know what's going on with their deer and, and or even notice that, that that the the bobcat they just brought in has a broken leg i mean you know they, they wouldn't even notice some of those things so it's it's pretty neat it, it's it's a great chance for education for a lot of folks um so it, it's worked out nice, and, and even the, the hunter ed really works hand in hand with any amount of you know anybody that hunts, anybody that really loves what they do and they want to give back to their sport. It only makes sense to do it. And I was thinking, why not work and do something you love? And also too, why not give back to something that's given so much to you? You are given so much to me, and I, I want to be able to give something back. Then we've got a good relationship. Gotcha.
1: Now, tell me how you got into the the, the hunter safety aspect. You get a, a chance to see to see who's coming up through the ranks and and who's getting in the hunter safety. And
0: oh, absolutely. Oh, sure. I I can remember. Uh, my first hunter safety course. I, I think nearly anybody can, and it's it was a class that you chose, one that you wanted. Um, hunter Ed students are such good students because they picked it. It's not like school and you go there and and it's a math class and everybody told you math was hard and you get in there and you don't really want to do it. That's not the case with Hunter Ed. And and if anybody's ever thinking of taking up teaching it, boy, keep that in mind because the students are so into what you you can hand them. And in order for man's relationship with the world to work, he's got to understand how the world works. He has to understand how he works. And then he's got to be able to understand how the two of them can work together. I think the whole human race now is on the how the two can work together. (laughs) That's probably the stage that that all of us, but every one of us was young and we we were brand new slates that couldn't wait to uh, jump into life experiences and to know something other than people. Uh, that's the other thing I just love about hunting is it, it, it's an other than human intelligence. And that's probably why we love the dog and the cat so much or the horse or, or any of the pets that we would have or any of the farm animals that we would have or any of the wildlife that we get a chance to, you know, have a little bit of a relationship with, even if it's all a buck that you saw for six seconds, you know. So there's, there's that kind of intense part of it that is really nice, and I, and I like that. And also, too, hunting could use a facelift in many ways. And if I can be part of that facelift, I, I'd be glad to. And I think if everybody did just a little bit, we the whole world would be a better place. Gotcha.
1: Yeah, are you seeing any kind of uh, trend as far as numbers that are of younger folk that are coming through Hunter's Ed? I mean, we hear these stories about there's a decline of hunters uh, out there and the word out. All, not an all-time low, but probably a, the low as far as we've seen. What, what's your perspective on that?
0: Uh, in general, uh, I, I see quite a few, uh, at least in the last three years, I see quite a few students. We're, we're at about 4,200 statewide in Vermont. Um, That's a pretty fair number of people, you know, to take, you know, 4,000 new hunters and introduce them to the sport. Um, Whether or not they'll be real active or they'll be real good at at being, you know, a a part of the management scheme or or whatever, well, that's, you know, to be decided in the future, I suppose. But for the most part, there's a, a pretty good amount of people coming into it. But the bummer is that there's so many uh, older guys, I think in Vermont our average hunter is f- 53 years old, so there's this bubble of older guys that will be retiring from hunting very soon. Uh, some of them are doing it right now, but some of them will be going out, say, the next 10 years. And that's going to seriously change uh, who the department's new customer is. Um, you know the, the 50-year-old white guy and his kids were always like Fish and Wildlife's uh, customers. They were the ones who were most active, you know, when they went to that branch of government and asked and wanted to know and and were, you know, people who contacted Fish and Wildlife on a steady basis. It was us and our children and pretty soon that demographic is about to change. Uh, Vermont hosted the international hunter education uh, giant worldwide thing And, and we had Hunter Ed from you know all fifty states, uh, from Sweden and South Africa, and from all all different places, and we were at Basin Harbor on Lake Champlain, and we had a four day summit, and we that was one of the things that we discussed was this huge bubble of older guys that will soon be leaving hunting, hmm. and you know the department's new challenges when it comes to managing animals or or any of the the new the new the new requirements of of that branch of government soon. Gotcha. Okay
1: let's uh, let's talk about some of your hunting strategies uh, you, you've described yourself as a tracker it seems like you're you're enjoying that aspect of hunting where you you move you're interacting and uh, as you said uh, educating some of the deer as you do this um, where do you where do you start your day as a tracker what where do you begin your hunt
0: I, I used to uh, pray and scream and, and hope and jump and please. I, I would beg the weatherman to uh, put some snow on the ground. I, I'm a lot like Joe Donito or um, Jim Massette or or any of those fellas. Uh, Bob Howie, right? We, we all we all want to see those 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 snowy days where we have a chance to go and look. Um, myself, uh, one of the greatest probably seasons I could have would be to have the first couple three days of a season with rain about three or four days before the start of the season and all the dirt roads everywhere in northern Maine have been rained and then I can take the truck and drive out through and just take my time, driving slow along the dirt roads, along those new skidder landings, looking for a big buck track. Just find one track somewhere in the dirt somewhere that is just a big monster. And then I found a buck and I know that he lives somewhere on that 15 mile road or whatever, he's in that giant valley, there's one good buck right here. And when I find, if I can find four or five nice big bucks and then Like magic, the old snow turns on and I like the snow to turn on in the evening so that the buck has got all night long to make a bunch of tracks and then first thing in the morning to be up at 3 or 4 and drive out those roads and go and look, especially when I was younger, I was in a big hurry to get out there and try and uh, look around and try and find the, the biggest possible, nicest, widest, biggest, oldest, heaviest buck that I could find. And then go, go see if we could run into him for the day and follow him and where he went all during the night and hope and pray that he was laying there somewhere out in front of me or doubling back on his track or just uh, rubbing his horns. And I'd follow up to him and look around the corner and he'd be standing there and I'd get a chance to to see him or um, to. Hopefully, bring him home. It was—I just fell in love with the unfolding of a story. My my mother used to read the books to me, and she—we turned one page at a time, and it wasn't jump ahead and look at the pictures. It was an unfolding, and the imagination of what was coming is really what I like. And. I love to be able to read the story on the ground and and see and imagine and then when I get up to it and I see the actual picture it's a complete surprise and even now with the films the film goes to show a lot of you know how we feel about it and it is so much fun in that unfolding of a story, and that i 'm a character in this book now is really that is a, a super draw, and that can happen whether you 're in a tree stand or any any way you hunt you know that that's just an outlook but I, I just love that unfolding story, and I like the physical part of it. I love to walk i i've been walking my whole life my dad uh, he's he's up there pretty good now, and he's still walking every day doing lots and lots of it and, and I just love the mountains too i that maybe that's the Daniel Boone thing again i I just love being in the mountains and walking around and earning the view. I like that um, so I'm really not too much into the gadgets, but I like the story and if I've got my all my gear on and I'm ready to spend the night if I have to, I'm ready to take the chances and the risks that will be there, and I'm willing to. Earn that deer and deserve him at the end of the day. I, I feel really good about that. That's a, a deep satisfaction for me. Um, okay. It's different for everybody.
1: When you're first starting out and you're trying to find that track, you're driving around in your truck, and do you pass on a lot of tracks until you do find that right one? Like it has to be a certain criteria. And if so, what is that criteria?
0: In the very beginning, man, all I needed to be was a buck. Okay. And, one of the very first bucks I, I ever chased that just happened to be a giant, and I didn't know it, and I ended up shooting him. I, I was enthralled by how that thing could be so big, and the track didn't look all that much, and uh, that that part of it is just, I, and I was, I, as long as it was a buck and I got a shot at him, that was good enough. Deer comes so hard in New England, um, you know, we're about seven, eight, nine percent success rate for our hunters. You know, the average Vermonter shoots one deer every 10 years. Hmm. So when you're hunting in woods where it's super tough and you'd really like to get a deer. Boy, it's hard on your heart, and you, you. after a while, you know you can start out driving to California, but then I, and you say, I want that big ten pointer, and then a little while later you see a six and you turn the wheel and you stop in Ohio, right? <laughs> That's almost what it amounts to. It's, it's so hard to stay on task in New England because it beats you down. It, these are giant woods. You spend most of your time looking at trees, and it's just there's so few deer. When you do come across something, it's really re- rewarding, and at the point that I'm at now where I've shot quite a few deer, I walked away from a lot of tracks even this year. I, I want to say 15 or 20 really good buck, you know, stuff, you know, three-year-olds even that that most people would, would die for. They, they, they'd they be more than happy to shoot some of the, the deer that I've I walked away from even this year, and, and I've got some... I've got lots of time. That's one of the beauties about being in business for yourself. And I tried to arrange my life so that I could go deer hunting because deer hunting meant so much to me. And I, I tried to get it so that I can go and spend as much time as possible because it, in order to win at gambling, you'd have to roll the dice a lot. Well, when you're gambling on shooting a buck in Vermont, uh, or New Hampshire or Maine and, and you're you know, maybe one or two or three deer per square mile at the most And it's so far in between bucks and then the competition with so like you said so many good deer hunters Well boy after a while every deer in the woods is smart He's been pounded and pushed and chased and, and you name it And he's got to survive and he's really good at what he does and you don't get very many opportunities And there's a lot of good deer hunters that, that I know even this year that just could not get a buck in front of them. Those are really tough conditions. Uh, Some of them didn't even see a deer at all for an entire season. I think this last season here, I saw probably six deer in two and a half weeks in Maine. Mm. To see six deer total, I I know some places you can probably hunt 20 minutes and see six deer. that changes you, but I walk away from a lot of them, and I'm looking for that 200 pounder. I, I that I like that that nice big mature four or five year old if I can find him. Uh, not that a two or a three won't do the trick if, if it's the end of the season or something. But it changes from day to day, and I never say, oh, I'll definitely kill this buck. And I, there's been a few of them where I've I've hunted the entire season just after one, but. It's not too often that I do that so much anymore. I, there was a stage. I was kind of in the trophy stage where I, I just wanted the big monster and nothing else. And I'm not so much that now. Now I'm out for the experience. And I want an incredible experience. Uh, Lanny's waterfall buck there that he has on video, Lanny Benoit. Yep. That, that waterfall, what an incredible adventure. And that's what I want to have is those big adventures.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense as – if you get to explore the woods and, and go on an adventure where you're not confined to the land that you, you got permission to hunt.
0: Yeah. The freedom of it the is freedom. really, yes. You know, New England is kind of the last place, especially, you know, Maine, New Hampshire and Vermont where you can go and just hunt. And, and that is, that is rare. There, Most places it's pretty sewed up. Hunting has become privatized and uh, I'm kind of a wolf now. I I don't want to be told where I can go, what deer I have to shoot, and and whether or not it's okay to do what I do. I I love the freedom of just being able to go and do it. I I love it when the sign at the gas station says "Welcome Hunters." I I just love that. Yeah. That 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 freedom is really what I'm I'm looking for. It
1: is funny uh, coming from New England, hunting out of state. How different it is, and how much you, you don't realize how much you love that aspect of hunting New England until you try to hunt other states, Absolutely right? It's
0: laws are different. The people are different. Uh, they're really competitive. And that part of it is, is a shame because it's the competitiveness that sometimes can undo you. Um, and I don't want it. I, I, I turned into twice as good a hunter. I doubled my effectiveness when I stopped being competitive about hunting. And it doesn't bother me if I go to a crowded place and there's lots of people because every chunk of woods has got one good buck in it. Whitetails are good. They're good. And there's always one good buck in every piece of woods that I've ever been to in my whole life. There was always one good one around. And if I can go into that crowded place and pull out that great big buck that nobody else could get, now I've done something. And that's just kind of the stage I'm at. Not necessarily everybody's ready for that, but that's where the satisfaction for me is. And, and that's what I'm looking for. And if I can kind of fast track the boys in that direction, boy, that's great. That That's what they like too.
1: Right. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's just a very unique experience. Not that we have the greatest deer here, but we may have the greatest adventure here.
0: Awesome here, but the killing is terrible. <laughs> that's right.
1: That's right. The killing is terrible, but the the adventure is top notch. Well, let's take a Hunter's Blend coffee break, and when we come back, we'll pick up with our conversation with Rodney Elmer and talk about some simple navigational skills with a basic compass. For the last few weeks, I've been telling you about the Hunter's Blend coffee, and i got to tell you, it's one of my favorite cups of coffee. I have it in the morning, I've been known to knock it back in the podcast studios when I'm doing interviews, and it's just got this really rich, bold flavor. Getting to know the folks at Hunter's Blend, I've learned that green coffee is typically bought and sold through five or six layers of marketers before it ever reaches the U.S. And most green coffee importers view life very differently than we do as hunters. And those same importers are inclined to support lobbyists that work against hunting. Hunter's Blend coffee is different. Not only are they hunters, but they give to the causes that support our hunting lifestyle. By bypassing the middlemen, they can pay each farmer what the coffee is worth typically twice as much or more as they had previously been paid. The farmers are making an incredible difference in their communities. In Nicaragua, Diego is providing jobs to help lift people out of poverty and into a better way of life. In Thailand, the collection of family farms provides safe jobs with dignity to over 80 women, three-quarters of which were previously involved in some form of sex trade. Not bad for a cup of coffee. Go to huntersblendcoffee.com to order some today and ask for it at your local hunting store they don't carry it, send them to Hunter's Blend Coffee. Hunter's Blend Coffee, we're hunters too. And now back to our conversation with Rodney Elmer. As you need to be in tune with uh, exploration and uh, navigation where you live in order to hunt the way you hunt, yep. well, you got to get real familiar with a compass, a compass you- right? Super important.
0: Yeah, it is. Um, if if your batteries fail failing, the GPS, you might as well have a rock tied to a stone, you know, tied to a, your neck because it's not going to do you any good. Um, and that that compass is so basic; it's so easy to use. Uh, you know, there's there's I've, I've watched a million videos. I've seen a million different people teach compass, and keeping it simple is it's such a simple piece of equipment. It's it's basically this base plate. And that has an arrow on it, the direction of travel arrow. And most so of the better ones, at least, will have an azimuth ring and then a magnetized needle in it. Um, usually, one end's red, the other's white. A basic move of setting your compass up for the day and just using it to to get where you need to go is amazing. And I. I Tried to think of the best way to teach it. I, I've seen it taught by all kinds of different people. I've, I've watched every YouTube video that there is on it just about. And it, it's People make it really confusing, and it really shouldn't be. And if you think of the compass, uh, a compass on a ship is bolted right to it. So if you think of your compass as bolted to you, and you hold it right flat in front of your belly button, and you put that direction to travel arrow on the base plate pointed in front of you because, I don't know about you, but I walk frontwards, right? If you hold that compass, and you hold it the right way, and you allow the compass to turn your body while you hold it the right way, mm-hmm. it will point you where you need to go. It's so amazing. and. I, I take all the, the kids outdoors and, and we park, we, there's a rig in the parking lot, so I say, okay, here's our rig, we parked it, and let's all face the woods where we're going to go hunting for the day, so the whole class holds their compass the right way, nice and flat and level in front of their belly button, and they put their direction to travel arrow in front of them because they walk forward, and they face the direction that they want to go for the day, and then they turn the azimuth ring until red is in the shed, or north, and, and then the red part of the needle line up and now that compass is set for the day and whenever they hold the compass the right way and they put the red in the shed by turning their bodies the direction of travel arrow just takes them right deeper into the woods and when you get up on top of the hill and you just whip it out and you turn your body until white is in the shed and it's pointing you right back to the truck. It is so easy and so smooth and so nothing and, and the vast majority of the class I, I do this We walk 10 feet, right? And we walk 10 feet back, and they all, the entire 30 people all turn just as perfect when I say this and I say that. It is so awesome to watch. And they're like, wow, why didn't somebody teach me how to use that thing and show me how easy it was? When you think life is easy, it's easy. Um, So now I just want to think, okay, that big buck is going to stop and he's going to stand there for me. And this is what he's going to do. And I just do it. And if we if we understood how easy life is and how much control over it we have we'll be less affected by the outside world and we'll be the masters of our world and when you take a kid and you show him how to correctly use a compass and he goes home and shows his grandfather he's going to have quite a feeling isn't he right right yeah <laughs> that's that's awesome you know and the real fulfillment in anything is what you become and when you learn to master something as simple as a, a little piece of plastic with a, a a magnetized needle in it. <laughs> You're really feeling good about something that's pretty simple. Imagine what it's like when you you figure out something that's very complicated, like a giant old buck that's really got his head down.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Definitely. Compass is your friend uh, if you need navigation for sure, and it's, it's such a simple tool. Have you ever had a uh, a compass uh, reverse polarity
0: on you? I did once. Uh, it was one of those kind of ball compasses that's mm-hmm. in some little clear ball. And no matter which way I swirled it around, it pointed north, south, and northwest and northeast. And I kept stirring it and stirring it. And it didn't matter. It would not settle on a particular spot. And I ended up chucking it. Um, thank thank goodness that I you know always paid attention to which way the sun came up. And here we are um, on the Golden Road, and we've got a camper, and we're in a gravel pit. And I said to my brother-in-law, I said, man, this thing is just not right. And he just grabbed it out of my hands and threw it. Yep. <laughs> yep. Says, I'm not going to be looking for you tomorrow, you know, just one of those kind of right. things. Oh, just just awesome. It can, it could happen, and sometimes uh, I, I'll definitely check them, uh, yeah. especially preseason, and make sure. I have had them too close to an electronic device, and that can mess them up, you yep. know.
1: Yeah, I've had the same experience. It seems to be unique to the ball compass. Uh, Those things seem to be more sensitive, breaking down their polarity than the others. I've had some completely reverse. And certainly, you know, if you're holding your gun too close to the the ball compass or probably any compass, the polarity of the metal will even pull it away. That may not affect the compass once you uh, remove the two from each other. However, there is a definite situation where... I've had polarity reversed or altered in using ball <laughs> compasses. So just, yeah, just a warning that I think the flat ones, you know, the, the ones with the azimuths and all that, that seems to be one of the more foolproof ones yet, uh, still very simple.
0: Yeah, definitely more reliable. Oh yes, definitely.
1: Let's talk about some of your techniques while you're on the track of a big buck. What, what, as you're tracking and, and following the, 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 monster track, what are you, what are some of the things that are going through your head as you're trying to figure out what's going on?
0: Yep. Well, if I'm driving down the road and, uh, three deer come across it and, uh, they've gone up on a hillside, uh, I'll, first thing I want to do is look at the overall size of the hoof print. I, uh, the bigger, the better. Um, I'm also too looking for the stride. Um, you know, a, a linebacker is going to take a lot bigger, longer step, um, then a little, little. Short fella, so there's there's some differences there. I'm also looking for the width of the the stride, you know, the length of it for between each step, but also to the width of the buck overall. Um, if he's with other deer or by himself, can make a little bit of a difference. If he's by himself, uh, first thing I want to do is I and I would always get the boys out of the truck and I'd say, okay, what do you think? And they'd look at the track and they'd say, boy, that's a pretty big one. And then, yep, yep. And how big do you think it is? And have them just guess at it a little bit. And then we follow him for a ways. And then I would ask him, okay, tell me what this deer's attitude is. In the first couple 300 yards, figure out what's on this deer's mind, okay? So we'd start walking out through the bushes. And if the buck was really hopping and jumping and then walk, 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 and then go back to hopping and jumping again like he's in a hurry, I want them to make sure and notice that so they would say boy he's kind of on a mission he you can tell he's walking right along and like he's in a yank if he steps off the road and goes a short distance and he starts lollygagging a little bit more he's not like holding a straight line he's not in a hurry the the pace of it is always really important, and I want to try and establish the pace as quickly as I can as soon as I get out of the rig. Mm. The second I get out of the rig, I want to know if he's really hauling or if he's just lollygagging and going easy, because if he's easy, he might be standing right there someplace. Gotcha. There's been times when the buck just barely went across the road, and I want to notice that as quick as possible, because I could bump right into him, and now instead of you know meeting him or being gentle and going easy and getting up to him, I'll bump into him, and now I'm going to spend the whole day. And probably at least the next hour hour and a half trying to close that gap again the whole point is to be as close to the deer as possible and To eliminate those miles of nothing that are out there and he might have If say he's seven or eight hours, you know since he's crossed that road I still want to know the attitude right away. That's an important thing figure out the deer's attitude figure out his size Also too, the next thing I'm looking for is any indication of how far he might go how far away he is from me right now if he stays straight and he's really hauling and say he's climbing a ridge and he he really just keeps going and he holds a line for a long distance it's like uh, joe denito says he's on the interstate he's on the highway he's just going and that'll tell me well he's out there for a ways now i'll look at the terrain and i'll try and pick how far away he should be now it doesn't mean that there isn't a doe partway or something like that but Say it's early in November, um, not quite, it's pre-rut and he's crossed the road, we got a little early snow, he's gone up on a hillside, he's hold a line for quite a ways and then slows down and starts feeding. Well, now I know that he's probably not all that far ahead of me. You end up having to be a weatherman a little bit with tracking because you got to know when the snow hit the ground and also, too, what your track looks like compared to his track, you know, what a real fresh and not so fresh looks like. Um, if he's got multiple deer with him, uh, he probably won't be as far. I really like it when there's um, a good big size, good size buck with a, a couple other deer with him. They probably the group won't be all that far away. It's more eyes and ears for spotting you but by the same token, it'll keep him in a short distance. Mm-hmm. The pre rut situation where he might go miles and miles looking for a doe because there's none in heat yet and he's just wandering, I, I probably won't catch him. And knowing what track to take and what track not to take is real important. I think the ones not to take are even more important. And you almost have to track a billion bucks before you Start figuring out I'm never going to catch this deer and there's quite a few of them where you won't catch them And to know that is really important and that attitude right off the bat the size of him and the shape of him uh, There's been a few of them that were really super wide buck and a wide buck carries himself through the brush a little bit different And if you can notice some of those things you're good to go
1: Okay so, how do you tell the difference between the buck that you think you can catch up with and the one that you can? not is, is, Does it have to do with the stride and the, the 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 straightness of the line and the determining if they're just going to keep keep on going, or is it something else?
0: Yeah, a lot of times that's that's a big part of it. Uh, the other thing too can be the terrain because we're in mountains. Um, generally, uh, if he's if he's going along a valley, um, say, and there's a crosswind on the valley, and say he's, it's early and he's looking for does, and he's crosswinding the valley trying to find a doe that's down in there without running through the whole thing. If we had noses like them, we'd probably hunt a lot different because we would be using the wind a lot more to help determine where we walked. And, of course, deer don't know where other deer are. They have to go and look for them. They have an idea. Where to look for him, but in general they don't know exactly where other deer are and they have to search So as that buck takes off and goes down that valley and he's really holding a line say he's paralleling a a five mile long dead-end road And he's on the downwind side of the road. He's keeping track of the road But he's also looking for for does as he he works his way down through there And he's really working at a pretty good clip and going straight and he's going fast I know Drive around. Let's go look out in front of where he's headed and see if he's already crossed the road. Sometimes I've, I've saved myself, especially like with Maine or um, even the upper part of New Hampshire there, whereas the logging roads are pretty well gridded out everywhere. Um, it's pretty easy to catch one crossing the road and go around and he's crossing another road. I and mean, You would have spent an hour and a half if you'd have jumped out in the beginning so it's really nice to be able to do that but there's some places like the adirondacks or some mountain areas where you're not going to be able to do that but the other thing too is if he comes to a stop say he's going like crazy on a long straight line say he went three-eighths of a mile and he didn't really turn much and he just all of a sudden pulls up and does a stop or does a stop and then an elbow. Now, I, now I'm now i saying, okay, he smelled something, something's up. Uh, there's a signpost rub here. There's something that distracted him. There's a moose out in front. Uh, there's something, a hunter. Something has happened here. And that's when I'm gonna start hunting. Knowing when to hunt and when to follow um, can really get you on the deer quicker. And a lot of times that pace is really everything. And when they're going, you got to go.
1: Okay. So what is it, what are some of the other indicators that you see when it's time to hunt?
0: Uh, if they stop to feed. Okay. But that pre-rut situation too, I've had quite a few of them feed and then go right back to hauling again. Okay. They were, they were just in the mood to have a little bite. Now, if they feed real heavily or they eat a lot of... Uh, moss the green moss like say on a log the moss will really bloat them up some and they'll want to chew their cud and if i see a deer eating moss going to be pretty soon the rest of them i've had quite a few that did some chewing and then took off but most of the time there'll be a a turn of some kind a major turn in direction they'll pull up stop do a four-wheel stance you know all four legs stop Mm -hmm. they'll kind of survey that spot and then they'll start meandering and wandering. We would do the same thing. If we were going along and all of a sudden we said, oh, I gotta take a leap, we would do a, a, a stop, and then we would step off to the side, and we would do our thing. A buck will do the same thing. He'll be walking right along, and then he'll decide, oh, I'm gonna eat. Or, uh, oh, there's something over here, I smell something. He'll turn, he'll do something different, and now it's time to hunt. If I go along for a ways, and then he goes back to holding that same old line he was doing before, Odds are good he's still way out in front of you and you can still keep moving right along. It's one of those things. It's a case by case thing, which was what keeps it so interesting. Yeah. And also too, a buck personality. Some some bucks have real predictable personalities. And this is the one beauty about practicing tracking that you can do. You can get on a, a, a two week old deer track and follow it and predict where it's going to go in the landscape in front of you and in the landscape in general and what it will do and then follow it and see what it does. It's such good practice to do that. Um, Even the dog, I'll let her out, she walks out across the yard and I don't look. Then I I don't look at what she does and then I practice. I follow her tracks out through and I predict where she's going to go and what she's going to do next. And you can see the attitude in the tracks of even your dog out in the yard. And it's so such a good unfolding story and it's so easy to practice and once you kind of get the hang of it you can start predicting it and calling it um like that that video that we put out this year of the my muzzleloader buck um we were predicting what was going to happen pretty close most of the time and after you've done it a little while you really start picking it up and you'll be able to point right to it and you'll see those, those little small signs of a bed and then some feeding. And then it, another stop and like assess the area like the deer stopped and he looked around. And as soon as I see that assessing and looking around, I say, oh, he's looking for a place to park. You know, even you slow down in the parking lot. You know, you drive differently. And it's the same thing with that deer. He's starting to drive differently. And noticing those little things is, is it takes practice, ain't no question. But it's a lot of fun too. Mm, no, that's fascinating. Very cool. Well,
1: let's uh, let's get into a memorable deer hunt, if we could, Rodney. I, I asked you. I mean, you've told us a story before at the Deer Summit, but I want to see if you had another really cool deer story that you'd like to share sure. with us.
0: Well, we we were kind of, and it, this kind of feeds into this was the scenario I was thinking about when I was explaining it. Uh, there's a uh, the road that Taylor shot his deer on this year. Um, we were driving out and. Uh, three deer came across the road. Uh, first thing in the morning, had uh, some nice brand new snow from the evening before, and uh, one buck, uh, pretty good size, and then two smaller, 130-ish pound deer. Uh, the buck is good. He looks like a, a good 200 plus, and all three of the deer have come out of this long swamp. And they've crossed through a little, small, narrow cut on the side of the road. They've they've stepped out, actually, into the road. They walked down the road just a little bit in front of us, um, probably for 15 or 20 yards, and then turned and found a place to jump into a clear cut on the uphill side. They jumped into the clear cut, literally two of them jumped from the road and go up in there. Now, the deer crossed the road completely on their own. There wasn't any vehicles scaring them or anything. And the bigger buck, he was following up the other two. So all the deer, all three deer, start up this ridge. I and mean, as they're working up the ridge, uh, two of them are walking really fast, and they're right on top of each other all the time. And then every now and then they'll break out into a trot, almost a canter, and they they jump, but he jump, but he jump up the hill. But the big one is in the back, and he's on top of everything, and he's just coming and dragging. You know, you can say, oh, classic. Big buck in the back, you know, a little choo-choo train of early breeding activity. And they go up the mountain. Um, They actually don't do any feeding. They're just working their way up on top of the ridge. There's a nice, it's not a real high ridge, I want to say maybe 2,600 feet. And uh, there's a lot of nice fur at the top. There's some rock and it's its kind of rough. There's a few places that you know the deer won't go. It's like a big fence. And I kind of like that when I saw it. And I asked the boys, I said, any you want this track? And they're like, nope, nope, nobody wanted it. I just, I ain't got a feeling, they said. And I said, okay, well, I'm gonna show you what this buck looks like because this is a beauty. And I'm not walking away from him. He's gotta be 220. So we start up the ridge, and and as I'm going, the the two smaller deer are kangarooing, and the big one's just walking behind, coming up. When we get on the very top, and they're going down a small skid trail, one of the deer takes a quick left and and jumps into the the small six-foot fir trees on the side of the road. Hmm. The other deer that's the young one that's going along, he's running and jumping, and he goes kangarooing right by that quick turn. Which means that the two front deer were probably spread out some. Well, what it was is he skidded down and turned around and came back and then turned in where the other deer was. And then the big one comes along on top. I've just learned the sex of all the deer. The very first one is a good sized doe, the very second one is a young buck, you know, because he's pestering her. And the big buck is in the back, and he's coming up the hill behind the whole bunch. You know, that classic breeding scenario young buck, big buck, and a, and a good smelling duck. Yep. And I discovered this right in this road. I said, Oh, one of the smaller deer is a buck, too. So the all three deer turn into the bushes, and we start out along the top of the ridge. And I'm just taking my time. Uh, I come around a corner, and there's a, a big cow moose. She's laying there chewing her cud. She's only about 25 yards away. Hmm and the deer had walked right by her, and she didn't get up, and the deer just walked right by her and kept right on going, and I tried to tiptoe past her, and I got most of the way by her, and then she noticed me, and she and I didn't want her to run down my tracks. Yeah. A lot of times, animals run on top of other animals' tracks, and they've, they've got that like yarding mentality, and they just, just run down where something else was just there. I didn't want that cow to run down my tracks, because she would disturb my deer. But she didn't, thank God. I got around her enough, and she she headed off in another direction, which was perfect. And I went back to following my deer. And as I'm following them along the top of the ridge, and it's nice uh, mixed woods, softwood and hardwood. And I look up, and I see a deer running right at me. And I said, oh, here they come. Well, the first one, I, I just see doe, and it's in and out, but it's coming right at me. And I'm standing just off to the side of the tracks. Uh, they went into a real thick spot, and I don't like to get real tight with my gun because if I climb in the real tight, tight spot, I won't have a shooting lane. You know, you when you're bird hunting, you always stay where you can shoot. and You want to make sure that you step where you're, you're, you've got shooting lanes. So I step around this kind of thick spot and she comes kangarooing right up the ridge right at me and goes right into this uh, little bit of of fur and stuff that's probably 30 yards from me. And I'm nice and quiet, the wind is good and I'm just standing there. And I'm watching down her tracks where she just came from and I lift up my rifle and I'm waiting. And I I see little bit of tines, I see just a little tiny bit of tines and that's it. And I couldn't see body or anything else, I just saw a little bit of horns and it was a nice big rat. And I said, oh good, here he comes. So the doe finally comes out of the brush right next to me and now the, the two buck are in the brush in front of me and this doe has stepped right out in the wide open with me. And she looks at me and I wave my hand at her and I say, get out of here, go on. And she takes off running in the perfect direction back behind me. So the two bucks have got to go by me and now I just stand there. And I'm waiting and the bucks are listening and we're all just standing there. That like moment in time when everything just stops. And I'm standing there. It feels like forever. And I hear a grunt. So I grunt back. I just, just my throat, you know, I just right back at her. at him. And then I can hear antlers on a small tree. And it's just right to it. And I'm saying, oh, come here, boy, come on. And then I see some legs coming. And I get all ready to go because I just saw a rack. And out pops right where the doe is. Out out pops this little five-pointer. And he, he looks at me and then looks back over his shoulder, and I'm saying, oh, just follow the doe, just follow the doe, and he jumps out towards the doe, and I said, oh, perfect, now the big one's got to go by me, right, so I'm thinking, now he's had the radish, so I'm now focused on that spot, and off he goes, so I'm waiting, and I hear antlers again, and I'm like, oh, boy!" so I grunt at him, and he grunts back, And then hearing him walking, jump, 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 and he's walking, he's making his way. Well, I'm all focused on the spot where all the other two deer just came out. I'm standing there waiting, and I'm, "Come on, boy, come here!" And my heart's pounding like crazy. I'm getting all tuned up, getting ready to go. The safety's off, and I'm saying, "Come on!" and it's quiet, and it's quiet for probably 30 seconds. And the longer you stand within 25, 30 yards of a deer, the longer you're there, the more you're going to be noticed. And I'm expecting something to go exploding crazy. Yep. And I said, well, i got to take a chance. So I snort wheezing. <sighs> I just blow at him. I snort wheeze, and I hear antlers on the tree again, and then I hear, but jump, 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 and he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. I can hear the, the steps. Now I can only hear out of one ear. It is a huge handicap in the woods when you're hunting to only be able to hear out of one ear. Right. You know, put a one ear plug in sometime and try it. I hear the sound, but I can't triangulate. I don't know where it's coming from. Right. I'm focused on this spot where the other two came out, and out of the corner of my eye, I see an antler whack a little sapling, and I look to my right, and that bugger is right there at about 15, 20 feet from me and every hair is standing up on him and he is completely sure that I'm a buck. I just got done grunting at him and snort wheezing at him and he just got done dealing with that small buck and he comes walking right at me in a wide open, every hair standing up with his rack sticking out and his ears laid back and he's threat walking me at about 20 feet <laughs> and to see a 220 pounder just doing that to you at 20 feet is what a feeling. Yeah. And I just, I just slowly swung my rifle 90 degrees and pointed it right at him, and he picked up his head and looked at me, and every hair laid back down. He's like, what's that? Right. <laughs> because he was ready to fight, ready to rumble, and he's literally dangerous. Oh, he, he could kill me, and I got to put that gun on him. And I swing the gun on him, and I'm holding it right on him, and then I just could not shoot. Right then, because he was so beautiful, I said to myself, you've got to enjoy this. Just look at that sight. And then he started coming again. He puffed right back up, talk, cocked his head, and came walking right at me. So I pull the trigger, and he bolts forward and comes right up into the air and does a leap towards me. Hmm. And I, I run backwards and open the bolt on my 7 millimeter Ruger, yep. and I fire another shot literally at about seven or eight feet just point at him and shoot and he lands seven or eight feet past me in a big heap and i'm standing there with my my heart is pounding like it's never pounded before and he weighed 227 and what a buck you know and when we got him home and we aged his jaw he was a nine-year-old and just if I'd have had a camera with me, it would have been the most awesome footage that you ever saw. And from now on, I'm going to have that. That I said that day, it, I'll never go without a camera again because it was such a beautiful, awesome sight. And I was standing there still shaking as he was kicking away. And he finally had the radish, and I made my peace with him. And what a And And that has been one of my most awesome ever. And I learned so much from that. What a story. What oh. an
1: experience. Oh, my.
0: Goodness. Just, it, it is really something when you test yourself. Yeah. I've always wanted to do that. And I want to earn my dear. I, I want to have a relationship with them. I, I want to earn them. I, I, I love gifts. I've gotten a couple of really good gifts, <laughs> right? I've shot a couple of bucks that were just a gift, but I shot a few that I had to earn and the ones I had to earn, it was so much more worth it, so much more worthwhile. And and there's tons of people who have never had a, an experience like that. And they really owe it to themselves to have one like that and to, to feel the best they can about the things they do.
1: Right. Right. Very good point. Well, let's uh, turn to the 10 rapid fire questions. Sure. Let's see if we can get to know you a little bit better. All right. What's your number one hunting tip of all time?
0: Get out there. You've got to go. Yep. The more you roll the dice, the more you win.
1: I agree. All right. What What's that one thing that you can't hunt without? It usually drives you crazy if you leave it back at home or in the truck.
0: Uh, if it's rifle season, I've got to have my gun. Okay. I've got to have bullets and I've got to have my gun. I, if that, that gun in me, it's the, maybe that's the Daniel Boone thing again. It, that gun in me, I just, my gun. I love that thing. Okay. I, I love it. Look out for the guy with one gun.
1: The guy, the gun guy. Got it. All right. Uh, what's your biggest pet peeve
0: in life? Uh, not understanding. I hate it when I can't understand. Yeah, gotcha.
1: When, how old are you today? I'm um, 53. 53. What would you tell the 25-year-old Rodney Elmer, knowing what you know today about life?
0: Oh, just love it. Love every little tiny bit of it. There was so much of it that I would, you, you know, your likes and your dislikes get in the way. Mm-hmm. And there were so many things that I disliked when I was young for no reason. And I shouldn't have been that way. And now I would never, ever do that. I, I wouldn't do that to myself. Wouldn't put myself through that. It would save me a lot of a lot of heartache if I I let a lot of my dislikes go. Gotcha. Okay.
1: You're at a hunting convention somewhere in the world, and a stranger comes up to you and asks you what you do for a living. What do you tell him?
0: Oh, I'm a taxidermist. All right.
1: What do you have for breakfast this morning?
0: Uh, my favorite, uh, ha- ham and uh, French toast.
1: Ham and French toast. All right. Yeah. Very interesting. <laughs> Sounds very Vermont. All right.
0: Yeah. Maple syrup. Vermont maple That's, syrup.
1: All right. Yep. Um, you get. You can have your own billboard on the side of Route 89. It's a blank canvas. You can put yep. anything you want on it. What would it say?
0: Breathe. Breathe. <laughs> that's the first step to doing anything, right? That's a good point. The first step to doing anything in your life is breathe. Human beings work the best when they breathe. You think the straightest when you breathe. Breathe.
1: <laughs> good point. That's uh, that's a very good point. never thought of it like that. All right, If I say the word "successful" to you, who's the first person that pops into your head, and why?
0: Oh, I have to say, my son Taylor. When I say successful, uh, he he has like turned into this. I want to be successful machine, mm. and he's done the same to all of us, the whole family, and it's changed how we thought about things. When when, when your your son is he's a little redheaded, Opie Taylor, right? And and he says, i want to be successful. And he does it completely on its own. It was a seed of his own. And he said, I want to do this. And now he's, he's such a joy and his, his joy is on self-start. That is awesome. He's taught us all to be on self-start.
1: Nice. Very cool. Nice when your son does that. Yeah. All right. What's a, what's a typical day in your life look like?
0: Oh, if I had to pick a day, let's make it a Saturday. Okay. Um, I'd, I'd get out of bed nice and early, close to sunrise, hop on the tractor, go out in the woods. Uh, I've got 100 acres. I, I love to cut trees. I'm working on a deer yard. I'd go out and work on my deer yard for a couple hours, and then come home, and Teresa would have a nice big breakfast for me, and then I'd look down to the shop, which is probably 300 yards from the house, and there'd be a turkey hunter in the yard waiting to report his turkey, and I'd walk down, and we'd talk about the good honey he had, and, and report his turkey for him and take pictures and stuff and then he'd head out and then in the afternoon i'd hop in the bass boat and go fishing for a few hours and then come home to uh, t-bone steak i think <laughs> very
1: nice all right then finally what's a deer hunting day in your life look like
0: oh getting out of camp uh and in eustace and driving with my sons up the road and driving out timpon road and watching the sunrise and a bull moose come across the road in front of us, and us going out in the woods and filming and seeing stuff all day long and having experiences and sharing them at supper back at camp and watching all the video that we took during the day. Each one of us will take some video during the day, even if it's just a joke or something that we made, and share our experiences and kind of defrag from the day and watch it all. And then uh, the Filming has added so much to our hunting. It's it's been so awesome, and, mm. and now I get to see myself. My my parents never had any photography stuff at all. I, I my picture of my very first year was pretty pathetic, and it was something that even I took when it was half scun. Um So to me, the the cameras and the pictures and that part is so important. And maybe when I'm in the nursing home with Alzheimer's, it'll be a new hunt every day. But. And I'll say, who's that guy? But it, it's it's a re- record of history, and, and it's so important to me. And I, I do like that to be part of it, too. Oh, that's neat. That's very cool.
1: Well, excellent. That's uh, that's the end of that exercise. I appreciate you going through that with me. And Rodney, if, if we haven't answered everybody's questions here, if we've somehow uh, driven more questions because of what we discussed, where would we find more information about you and your family and uh, your taxidermy business and the things you're doing?
0: Yeah, well, we're um, you know at MountainDeerTaxidermy.com. Uh, we have a website for the shop. Uh, we're in Northfield, Vermont, and uh, we also have a Mountain Deer Taxidermy Facebook page. Um, I have uh, Rodney Elmer on Mountain Deer Taxidermy, plus you, I have my regular Facebook page for me personally. And then also, too, uh, the boys and I have a YouTube channel, which is Rodney Elmer and Mountain Deer Taxidermy, again. So uh, that's all pretty easy to find. Um, we're trying to have as many how-to videos as possible. And the boys, uh, Taylor especially, is really good on the IT stuff. So he's been making videos of where we go and what we do. And uh, there's been lots of questions. But you can definitely get a hold of us on YouTube or Facebook or uh, even email us at Mount uh, MountDeerTaxidermy at uh, TDS.net.
1: Very cool, man. Well, this has been an honor and a pleasure to have you on a one-on-one instead of a, on a panel, and I learned a lot more about what you have going on. And man, you're a great storyteller. So uh, can keep going out there and finding those adventures so you can bring them back and, and share them with the rest of the world. They're phenomenal.
0: Well, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. And uh, you've had a lot of really big guests on your show, and uh, I, I'm I'm not special, but I'm definitely unique.
1: Uh, it's always fun to talk to some deer trackers from New England, my my neck of the woods, and I just really enjoyed Rodney's authenticity and, and honest viewpoints. And he's always in a good mood, which I think helps to relay some of those those hard messages out to the middle ground community. That as hunters, we need to engage with, and and when it comes to the the legislation and the voting rights, we need to make sure that we're that we have them on our side. So. Rodney is a great liaison for that, and certainly he helps out the the hunting community, serving as a safety officer and chief hunter safety instructor in Vermont. Uh, So hopefully we'll we'll see more of Rodney on his channel. He certainly is doing a great job over on on YouTube. Uh, Dusty, do we have a Chubby Tines Tip of the Week?
3: Oh, as always, Jay, We've always got a Chubby Tines Tip of the Week. The Chubby Tines Tip of the Week is sponsored by Morse's
1: Sporting Goods. Firearms, use firearms. Bows, use bows located at 85 Kentook Falls Road in Hillsborough, New Hampshire. Give Jim a call at 603-464-3444, com. Your dollars go further in New Hampshire. There's no sales tax. Morse's Sporting Goods.
3: We'll get into a, a little bit about being able to read your property a little bit. And that that goes into not only the layout, the visual points, and that, that's something that I'm focusing on today is being able to walk through the woods and visually see where a deer may be coming up a trail and skylighting you in a tree. And, and what I mean by that is that the deer, when they're walking uphill, they're, they're going to naturally look up the hill and what's in front of them. Now if you set a tree stand on a hillside, a deer walking towards you and there's what's called skylighting you. They're able to see you up in that tree, almost like you're setting on the ground. Does that make sense to you? It makes a lot of sense, yeah. A couple, couple ridges that, that the deer are coming across. You know, when them deer walk up that ridge, they may be looking up at you, and and, and you may look like you're six feet off the ground to them. In reality, you're 15, 20 foot in the tree, but as they're coming up that hill, the uh, the layout of the land, it gives them that visual to be able to see you at a six to eight foot vision level. So you need to consider that, and that that's what I get into about Knowing the layout of the land, and right now is the perfect time to go walk. And if you're thinking about setting a tree stand up on a hillside, and you've got a major deer corridor coming at you, go down, go down that trail, turn around, walk back, and, and look around and see what's out there, see what the deer is going to see from where they're coming from, or and, and be able to to be able to pick out your tree stand location, and and that's something that you know many many years ago I learned that I, I set a stand, deer come down the trail, they look up and like man they're, they're seeing me look at them they turn around walking away mm-hmm. wouldn't make sound wouldn't blow Wouldn't nothing they just turn around and walk away well what was happening is that deer was walking up that trail as soon as they get about halfway up that knoll in his vision deer buck doesn't matter yearling and their vision they were seeing me where i look like i was eight foot off the ground even though i was 15 foot in the air right. right but when you know the layout of the land was allowing them to skylight me right that's something that uh you know, right now, walk around and, and, and look where your tree stands is located. If you had a problem that the deer wouldn't wouldn't commit to that trail and just they would just bump off of it, turn around, walk away, walk in another direction, it always happened and you're like, man, I don't know what's going on. You know, go back and, and replay what happened this year. Look at your stand from different directions and I'll tell you what, it'll educate you a lot about what them deer are seeing. So what, what did you do? Did you end up moving your stand in that scenario? Yeah, absolutely. You got to, uh, you got to go take that walk, look around and, uh, get where the deer have the least uh, amount of visual on you. Okay. All right. So
1: stand movement instead of, have you ever considered putting like some kind of a, a backdrop, um, to, to the backside of your stand? Is that effective or is that, is it better to move the stand?
3: Well, uh, I'd say move the stand because you get up there and you, you put a backdrop, you try to, you know, incorporate some limbs into your tree stand, make it kind of break up your silhouette and yep. make it, you're creating that blob, that, that blob that they, they recognize that it's not normal. Okay. Gotcha. Very good.
1: Dusty, where can we find you when you're not hanging out here in the studios with me?
3: Uh, shoot me an email, dusty at com. You can look me up on Instagram and Twitter at Chasing Antler, facebook.com forward slash chubby tines outdoors. Jay, where can the people reach out to you or you're not on the mic?
1: Likewise, you can shoot me an email, j at bigbuckregistry.com, and you can visit us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash bigbuckregistry. We're also on Twitter, which is twitter.com forward slash bigbuckregistry. We are also on Instagram, Instagram.com forward slash bigbuckregistry, and YouTube, which is YouTube.com forward slash bigbuckregistry. On YouTube, you can listen to all of our podcasts in their entirety far as videos are concerned it's a boring video but the audio content is there so you can actually listen to our podcast you can also listen to all of our live shows that we've done on thursday nights when we do do them and we've gone back and interviewed re-interviewed a lot of our previous guests we had on the show just to put a face to a voice let's put it that way you can always listen to our show on other places as well not just youtube we're found on itunes spotify iHeartRadio, TuneIn radio stitcher and blueberry and if you would like to submit a buck to our page for consideration and be featured on our page in front of 250,000 diehard deer hunting fans all you have to do is go to bigbuckredstreet.com forward slash my buck and all of the instructions will be right there i think that's pretty much everywhere we're at i think that's a wrap dusty
3: that's a whole lot of big buck jay
1: sure is i'm jay scott i'm dusty phillips and this is the Big Buck Registries Deer Hunting Podcast. We'll see you next week.